0: The Supreme Personality of Godhead taking up where we left off at the break on chapter number 49, Ill-Motivated Dhritarashtra, with His Holiness Kesha Bhardy Maharaj reading. Taking up, rather, at chapter 50, Krishna erects the Dwarka fort. Is
1: this working? Oh, there it is. Take two. (laughs) Krishna erects the Dwarka fort. Upon Kanksa's death, his two wives became widows, According to Vedic civilization, a woman is never independent. She has three stages of life. In childhood, a woman should live under the protection of her father. A youthful woman should live under the protection of her young husband. And in the event of the death of her husband, she should live under the protection of her grown-up sons. Or, if she has no grown-up sons, she must go back to her father and live as a widow under his protection. It appears that Kangsa had no grown-up sons. Therefore, after his wives became widows, they returned to the shelter of their father. Kangsa had two queens, Asti and Prapti, and both happened to be the daughters of King Jarasandha, the lord of the Bihar province, known in those days as Magadha. After reaching home, the two queens explained their awkward position following Kangsa's death. The king of Magadha, Jarasandha, was mortified on hearing of the pitiable condition of his daughters. When informed of the death of Kangsa, Jarasandha decided on the spot that he would rid the world of all the members of the Yadu dynasty. He decided that since Krishna had killed Kamsa, the whole dynasty of Yadus should be killed. He began to make extensive arrangements to attack the kingdom of Mathura with his innumerable military phalanxes consisting of many thousands of chariots, horses, elephants and infantry soldiers. Jarasandha prepared 13 such military phalanxes to retaliate the death of Kamsa. Taking with him all his military strength, he attacked the capital of the Yadu kings, Mathura, surrounding it from all directions. Shri Krishna, who appeared to be an <clears throat> Sri Krishna, who appeared like an ordinary human being, saw the immense strength of Jurasunda, which appeared like an ocean about to cover a beach at any moment. He also perceived that the inhabitants of Mathura were overwhelmed with fear. He began to think within himself about his mission as an incarnation and how to tackle the present situation before him. He thought that since he was not going to conquer the kingdom of Magadha to kill the king of Magadha namely Jirasinda, was useless. His mission was to diminish the overburdening population of the whole world. Therefore, he took the opportunity to face so many men, chariots, elephants and horses. The military strength of Jurasandha had appeared before him and he decided to kill the entire force of Jurasandha so that he would go back and reorganize his military strength. While Lord Krishna was thinking in that way, two beautiful chariots fully equipped with drivers, weapons, flags, and other paraphernalia arrived for him from outer space. Krishna saw the two chariots present before him and immediately addressed his elder brother Balaram, who was also known as Sankarshan. My dear dear elder brother, best among the Aryans, you are the lord of the universe and specifically... You are the protector of the Yadu dynasty.
0: The members of the Yadu dynasty sense great danger before the soldiers of Jarasandha. And they are very much aggrieved. Just to give them protection, your chariot is also here filled with weapons. I request you to sit on your chariot and kill all these soldiers, the entire military strength of the enemy. The two of us have descended to this earth just to annihilate such unnecessary bellicose forces and give protection to the pious devotees. So we have the opportunity to fulfill our mission. Please let us execute it. Thus, Krishna and Balaram, the descendants of Dasharha, decided to annihilate the 13 military companies of Jarasandha. After equipping themselves with military dress, Krishna and Balaram mounted their chariots. Krishna rode the chariot of which Daruka was the driver. With a small army, they came out of the city of Mathura, blowing their respective conch shells. Curiously enough, although the other party was equipped with greater military strength, when they heard the vibration of Krishna's conch shell, their hearts were shaken. When Jarasandha saw Balaram and Krishna, he was a little bit compassionate because they happened to be related to him as grandsons. He specifically addressed Krishna as Purushadhama, meaning the lowest among men. Actually, Krishna is known in all Vedic scriptures as purushottama, the highest among men. Jarasandha had no intention of addressing Krishna as purushottama. But great scholars have determined the true meaning of the word Purushadama to be one who makes all other personalities go downward. Actually, no one can be equal to or greater than the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Jarasandha said, It will be a great dishonor for me to fight with boys like Krishna and Balarama. Because Krishna had killed Kamsa, Jarasandha specifically addressed him as the killer of his own relatives. Kamsa had killed many of his own nephews, yet Jarasandha did not take notice. But because Krishna had killed his maternal uncle, Kamsa, Jarasandha tried to criticize him. That is the way of demoniac dealings. Demons do not try to find their own faults or those of their friends, but they try to find the faults of their enemies. Jarasandha also criticized Krishna for not even being a Kshatriya. Because he was raised by Maharaj Nanda, Krishna was not a Kshatriya but a Vaishya. Vaishyas are generally called Guptas, and the word Gupta can also, can also be used to mean hidden, So Krishna was both hidden and raised by Nanda Maharaj. Jarasandha accused Krishna of three faults, that he killed his own maternal uncle, that he was not even a Kshatriya, and that he was hidden in his childhood. And therefore Jarasandha felt ashamed to fight with him. Next he turned toward Balaram and addressed him, You, Balaram, if you like, you can fight along with him. And if you have patience, then you can wait to be killed by my arrows. Thus, you can be promoted to heaven. It is stated in the Bhagavad Gita that a kshatriya can benefit in either of two ways while fighting. If a kshatriya gains victory in the fight, he enjoys the results of victory. But even if killed, he is promoted to the kingdom of heaven. After hearing Jarasandha speak in that way, Krishna answered, My dear King Jarasandha, heroes do not talk much, rather they show their prowess. Because you are talking a great deal, it appears that you are assured of your death in this battle. We do not care to hear you any longer, for it is useless to hear the words of a person who is going to die or of one who is very distressed. To fight with Krishna, Jarasandha surrounded him from all sides with great military strength. As the sun appears covered by cloudy air and dust, Krishna, the supreme sun, was covered by the military strength of Jarasandha. Krishna's and Balaram's chariots were marked with pictures of Garuda and palm trees respectively. The women of Mathura all stood on the tops of the houses, palaces, and gates to see the wonderful fight. But when Krishna's chariot was surrounded by Jarasandha's military force, and was no longer visible to them, they were so frightened that some of them fainted. Krishna saw himself overwhelmed by the military strength of Jarasandha. His small army of soldiers was being harassed, so he immediately took up his bow named Sharanga. He took his arrows from their quiver, and one after another, he set them on the bowstring and shot them toward the enemy. They were so accurate that the elephants, horses, and infantry soldiers of Jarasandha were quickly killed. The incessant arrows shot by Krishna appeared like a whirlwind of blazing fire, killing all the military strength of Jarasandha. As Krishna released his arrows, all the elephants gradually began to fall, their heads severed by the arrows. Similarly, all the horses fell, their necks severed, and the chariots fell also along with their flags and the fighters and drivers on the chariots. Almost all the infantry soldiers fell on the field of battle, their heads, hands, and legs cut off. In this way, many thousands of elephants, horses, and men were killed, and their blood flowed just like the waves of a river. In that river, the severed arms of men appeared like snakes and their heads like tortoises. The dead bodies of the elephants appeared like small islands and the dead horses appeared like sharks. By the arrangement of the supreme will, there was a great river of blood filled with paraphernalia. The hands and legs of the infantry soldiers floated just like different kinds of fish. The hair of the soldiers floated like seaweed and moss, and the floating bows of the soldiers resembled waves of the river and all the jewelry from the bodies of the soldiers and commanders seemed like many pebbles flowing down the river of blood. Lord Balaram, who was also known as Sankarsana, began to fight with his club in such a heroic way that the river of blood created by Krishna overflooded. Cowards became very much afraid upon seeing the ghastly and horrible scene and the heroes began to talk delightedly among themselves about the heroism of the two brothers. Although Jarasandha was equipped with a vast ocean of military strength, the fighting of Lord Krishna and Balaram converted the whole situation into a ghastly scene far beyond ordinary fighting. Persons of ordinary merit cannot estimate how it could be possible, but when such activities are accepted as pastimes of the Supreme Personality of Godhead under whose will everything is possible, then this can be understood. The Supreme Personality of God it creates, maintains, and dissolves the cosmic manifestation merely by his will. For him to create such a vast scene of devastation while fighting with an enemy is not so wonderful. And yet, because Krishna and Balaram were fighting with Jarasandha, just like ordinary human beings, the affair, affair appeared wonderful. When all the soldiers of Jarasandha had been killed and he was the only one left alive, certainly he was very much depressed. Shri Balaram immediately arrested him with great strength, just as one lion captures another. But while Lord Balaram was binding Jarasandha with the rope of Varuna and ordinary ropes also, Lord Krishna, with a greater plan in mind for the future, asked Lord Balaram not to arrest him. Krishna then released Jarasandha. As a f- great fighting hero, Jarasunda was ashamed and he decided that he would no longer live as a king but would resign from his position in the royal order and go to the forest to practice meditation under severe austerities and penances. As he was returning home with his royal friends, however, they advised him not to retire but to regain safety. It would not have been possible for him to be defeated by the strength of the Yadu kings. The defeat he had experienced was simply due to his ill luck. The princely order encouraged King Jarasandha. His fighting, they said, was certainly heroic. Therefore, he should not take his defeat very seriously since it was due only to his past misdeeds. After all, there was no fault in his fighting. In this way,
1: in this way, Jarasandha, the king of 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 province, having lost all his strength and having been insulted by his rest and subsequent release, could do nothing but return to his kingdom. Thus Lord Krishna conquered the soldiers of Jarasandha. Although Krishna's army was tiny in comparison to Jarasandha's, not a pinch of his strength was lost whereas all of Jarasandha's men were killed. The denizens of heaven were very much pleased and they offered their respects by chanting and glorification of the Lord and showering Him with flowers, accepting the victory with great appreciation. Jarasandha returned to His kingdom and Mathura's city was saved from the danger of imminent attack. The citizens of Mathura, organized the combined services of professional singers like suttas and magadas along with poets who could compose nice songs and they began to chant the victory glorification of Lord Krishna. When Lord Krishna entered the city after the victory many bugles, conches, and kettledrums sounded and the vibrations of various musical instruments like beris, turias, venas, flutes and madangas all joined together to make a beautiful reception. While Krishna was was entering, the whole city was cleansed. All the different streets and roads were sprinkled with water and the inhabitants, being joyous, decorated their respective houses and shops with flags and festoons. The brahmanas chanted Vedic mantras at numerous places. The people constructed road crossings And gates and entrances to lanes and streets. When Lord Krishna was entering the nicely decorated city of Mathura in a festive attitude, the ladies and girls of Mathura prepared different kinds of flower garlands to make the ceremony most auspicious. In accordance with the Vedic custom, they took yogurt mixed with fresh green grass and strewed it here and there to make the victory celebration even more auspicious. As Krishna passed through the street, all the ladies and women regarded him with eyes bright with great affection. Krishna and Balaram carried various kinds of ornaments, jewels and other booty carefully collected from the battlefield and presented it it all to King Ugrasena. Krishna thus offered his respects to his grandfather because Ugrasena was at that time the crowned king of the Yadu dynasty Jurasinda the king of Magadha besieged the city of Mathura not only once but 17 times in the same way equipped with the same number of military phalanxes each and every time he was defeated and all his soldiers were killed by Krishna and each time he had to return home disappointed. Each time the princely order of the Yadu dynasty arrested Jarasandha in the same way and again released him in an insulting manner and each time Jarasandha shamelessly returned home. While Jarasandha was attempting his 18th attack, a Yavana king somewhere to the south of Mathura became attracted by the opulence of the Yadu dynasty and also attacked the city. It is said that the king of the Yavanas, known as Kalayavana, was induced to attack by Narada. This story is narrated in the Vishnu Purana. <clears throat> Once, a Gargamuni, the priest of the Yadu dynasty, was taunted by his brother-in-law. When the kings of the Yadu dynasty heard the taunt, they laughed at him and Gargamuni became angry at the Yadu kings. He decided that he would produce someone who would be very fearful to the Yadu dynasty, so he pleased Lord Shiva and received from him the benediction of a son. He begot this son, Kaliyavana, and the wife of a Yavana king. This Kaliyavana inquired from Narada, who were the most powerful kings in the world? Nara informed him that the Yadus were the most powerful. Thus informed, Kaliyavana attacked the city of Mathura at the same time that Jarasandha had tried to attack it for the 18th time. Kaliyavana was very eager to declare war on a king of the world who would be a suitable combatant for him, but he had not found any. However, Being informed about Mathura by Narada, he thought it wise to attack this city with 30 million Yavana soldiers. You're keeping track, right? Keeping track? When Mathura was thus besieged, Lord Sri Krishna began to consider, in consultation with Baladev, how much the Yadudenasi was in distress being threatened by the attacks of two formidable enemies Jurasandha and Kaliavana. Time was growing short. Kaliavana was already besieging Mathura from all sides and it was expected that the day after next Jurasandha would also come equipped with the same number of divisions of soldiers as in his previous seventeen attempts. Krishna was certain that Jarasana would take advantage of the opportunity to capture Mathura when it was also being besieged by Kaliyavana, He therefore thought it wise to take precautionary measures for defending against an attack upon Mathura from true strategic points. If both Krishna and Balaram were engaged in fighting with Kaliavana at once, in one place, Jarasana might come at another to attack the whole Yadu family and take his revenge Jarasandha was very powerful and having been defeated 17 times he might vengefully kill the members of the Yadu family or arrest them and take them to his kingdom Krishna therefore decided to construct a formidable fort where no two-legged animal either man or demon could enter he decided to keep his relatives there so that he would, be, would then be free to fight the enemy. It appears that formerly Dwarka was also a part of the kingdom of Mathura. In Srimad Bhagavatam it is stated that Krishna constructed the fort in the midst of the sea. Remnants of the fort Krishna constructed still exist in the bay of Dwarka. Krishna first of all constructed a very strong wall covering 96 square miles and the wall itself was within the sea. It was certainly wonderful and was planned and constructed by Vishwakarma. No ordinary architect should construct could construct such a fort within the sea but an architect like Vishwakarma who is considered to be the engineer among the demigods can execute such wonderful craftsmanship anywhere in the universe. If huge planets can float in weightlessness in outer space by the arrangement of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, surely the architectural construction of a fort covering 96 square miles within a sea is not very wonderful. It is stated in Srimad Bhagavatam that this new, well-constructed city developed within the sea, had regular planned roads, streets, and lanes. There were also well-planned parks and gardens filled with plants known as kalpa rikshas or desire trees. These desire trees were not like ordinary trees of the material world. The desire trees are found in the spiritual world. By Krishna's supreme will, everything is possible. So such desire trees were planted in Dwarka. The, this, so such desire trees were planted in Dwarka, the city constructed by Krishna the city was also filled with many palaces and gopuras or big gates these gopuras were, mm, are still found in some of the larger temples they are, they are very high and constructed with fine artistic skill such palaces and gates had golden water pots These water pots on the gates or on the palaces are considered auspicious signs.
0: Almost all the palaces were skyscrapers. In each and every house there were underground rooms containing big golden and silver pots for stocking grain. And there were many golden water pots within the rooms. The bedrooms were all bedecked with jewels, and the floors were mosaic pavements of marakata jewels. The Vishnu deity worshiped by the descendants of Yadu was installed in each house in the city. The residential quarters were so arranged that different castes, brahmanas, kshatriyas, Vaishyas, and shudras had their respective quarters. It appears from this that the caste system mentioned in the Bhagavad Gita existed even at that time. In the center of the city was a residence made specifically for King Ugrasena. This was the most dazzling of all the houses. When the demigod Indra saw that Krishna was constructing a particular city of his own choice, he sent the celebrated Parijata tree of the heavenly planets to be planted in the new city. And he also sent a parliamentary house, Sudharma. The specific quality of this assembly house was that anyone participating in a meeting within it would overcome the influence of invalidity due to old age. The demigod Varuna presented a horse which was all white except for black ears and which could run at the speed of the mind. Kuvera, the treasurer of the demigods, presented the art of attaining the eight perfectional stages of material opulence. In this way, all the demigods began to present their respective gifts according to their different capacities. There are 33 million demigods, each entrusted with a particular department of universal management. All of the demigods took the opportunity of the Supreme Personality of Godhead's constructing a city of his own choice to present their respective gifts, making the city of Dwarka unique within the universe. This proves that while there are undoubtedly innumerable demigods, none of them is independent of Krishna. As stated in the Chaitanya Charitamrita. Krishna is the supreme master and all others are his servants. So all the demigods took the opportunity to render service to Krishna when he was personally present within this universe. This example should be followed by all, especially those who are Krishna conscious, for they should serve Krishna by their respective abilities. When the new city was fully constructed according to plan, Krishna transferred all the inhabitants of Mathura and installed Sri Balaram as the city father. After this, he consulted with Balaram and being garlanded with lotus flowers but carrying no weapons, he came out of the city to meet Kaliyavana, who had already surrounded Mathura. Thus ends the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 50th chapter of Krishna. Krishna erects the Dwarka fort. Yeah, it's mentioned in the, in the Bhagavatam about how, and maybe it comes up later, but. It may be a detail passed over for the summary. That Krishna transferred. Did we hear that? He transferred everybody at night when they were sleeping. We read that? Yes? yes. That was there already? In the Bhagavatam, it says after he he, he erected Dwarka, just now coming. There was one other point I wanted to make any other points that will expand illuminate the conversation yes go paul champu prabhu Hare Krishna Hare Krishna Hare Krishna
2: so it was a point from chapter 47 if I if I can bring it up by whom is, is that okay chapter 47 yeah sure just this point of um Uh, Vipra Lava Seva that that Sri Tanya Mahaprabhu came to bring something I I just think about is you know it it may seem that service and separation they say it's the highest thing but it's like how to conceive of that because you know for example um, you know most of the year I'm not around my spiritual master and it's like okay service and separation but anytime I'm doing any direct service it's it just seems like out of this world absolutely you know like this is the best it can't get better than this so it's like i maybe that might i don't know if that's a good comparison but you know how to understand
1: that the thing that comes to my mind is that we've already read that in order for the meeting to become completely appreciated there has to be a feeling of separation in order for that feeling you're talking about that seems so like to, to be like that there has to be separation first so they're both actually linked even though it is also said that the intensity Of the feelings when you serve in separation are actually eventually when one comes to the conclusion greater, but it doesn't mean that that doesn't mean that we stay in separation without meeting either, you know. So, therefore, both of them are uh, complementary and uh, uh, serve one another.
0: You know, there's a term, and I forget what it is right now. It has to do with feeling separation while you're in the presence of somebody.
1: Oh yes, it's it's called
0: vichitta, uh, prema vichitta, uh, prema vichitta. I've experienced that before. One of my godbrothers, who I'm really attached to, one day I was chanting japa next to him, and all of a sudden I started thinking, how would I ever live without this godbrother? and i just got really emotional and he was sitting right there <laughs> and i was thinking like i oh i i couldn't reveal right now but it was it was a palpable you know that and i was and i was actually realizing like there's a different energy that i i this the, the body was sitting there chanting but i was feeling this other kind of connection on a spiritual level so it's a little uncanny as is the whole description there that we heard earlier with the gopis and how they were feeling Krishna's describing how he's ever-present but they were feeling separation at the same time another thought about that um, of course the idea of Vipralamba is that there's, what is it, the embankment of separation as described by Gorgo in his book called, of, of the same name there's the, the Sambog and Vipralamba, the two banks of the river of Prema, that uh, it's flowing, you know, because of separation and, and the union. And uh, I know whenever we leave the Yatra in, uh, in Puri, then devotees are feeling melancholy because they have to leave because it's such an intensely ecstatic uh, situation. And Madhavananda several times has made a point at the end that if, you, if, you, if we had it continually, if this is all we did every day, <laughs> after a while, <laughs> you'd get used to it. And uh, said so the fact that we're leaving it and that you feel separation is a good thing. Taking down the banners and the pictures and everything like that it gives you an opportunity then to feel separation for it.
1: The perfection of that feeling of separation in prema is that not only do you feel you know, the separation in the presence of the person, but it becomes so intense that you can't see the person, anymore. the person disappears to your sight, even though they're s- sitting right there, or, or right there with you. The is uh was caused by that uh, pastime between Radha and Krishna, in which. Uh, she felt such separation from Krishna because Madamongo came and chased away a bee that was bothering her, and chased her farther away. And he came back and he said, "Don't worry, Mata. You know that Madhusudan is gone and he'll never come back." And she took Madhusudan to mean Krishna because it's another name of Krishna, and she said Madhusudan is never coming back. And then she just went into this separation, and Krishna left. She could no longer see affection of praychitya. That the queens of Dwarka also experience that Prem Vichitya. Prabhu
3: is, is there a connection to this uh, feeling of separation um, and connected to us and how we actually are separated from Krishna. We've we we are in the material world. It's different from necessarily the gopis' highly elevated feelings of separation. But we so that that like that feeling maybe is important for us uh, in our sadhana. Like wondering.
0: Well, interestingly, in that section, Prabhupada mentioned and. It, this is not directly answering what you said, but just remembering the context, in context what he said was that in the material world, although we're surrounded by Krishna and all it, by His energies at every minute, we're never actually separated from Him. People in the material world feel separation from sense gratification. And the spiritual experience is actually ex- feeling separation from Krishna. But if uh, I'm not sure I understood your question exactly, if you could restate it in one sentence, I'd appreciate. it.
3: I'm also, not super clear on the question. I'm trying to understand that the, I guess the similarity and difference between our like state of separation from Krishna, and then the the and like that perfection of that and how it relates to like our sadhana this feeling
0: of separation well it's it's to be developed the more one actually becomes spiritually advanced and the more one realizes one's dependence on Krishna and the lights on by the way and his I mean it's separation is a is a pervasive mood for anyone who is advancing spiritually, and to the degree that one advances, one will experience that, no matter where one is.
1: Uh. Even we learn, while we're in the material world, absence makes the heart grow fonder. So that's a principle. And then when that principle is applied, when we're in devotional service then gradually as our feelings of separation grow for our spiritual master or even a particular service or anything in relationship to Krishna but to speak of Krishna's form you know you may be living in a temple and you may be very attached to the deities and you may be serving you know outside doing your whatever it is shopping or sankirtan or whatever it is and you may feel, remember by remembering the deities, then you feel separation from the deities. And that feeling of separation, is, as Prabhu said, it, it it causes you to progress or it helps you to progress with these feelings. And then we just heard, what was it we heard just just a few chapters ago, that the Goswamis, Prabhupada made that point, that the Goswamis, they never said, Oh, Krishna, great, I've seen you, now, now I've found you. They were always saying, Where are you, Krishna? Where, where are you? They go. Where are the residences? So in that way, it was a, it's a, it's a, sadhana to to increase our feelings, basically.
0: And going back to your question about the Tirubhav, when you're separated from physical presence of your spiritual master, really the um, acharyas talk about the ways in which it's a an arrangement to help us mature to take full advantage of the things we saw and heard and to realize that they've bec- how much the instruction and the example has become part of us as then when we're separated physically then we have to actually enact the instructions ourselves and see how how much we've we've learned from it and we actually feel the presence because of the way we've imbibed what that person has given us I had an experience when Prabhupada left. I was in New York at 340 West 55th, and we were going out five days a week to um, LaGuardia, believe it or not, and uh, one day a week to Kennedy, and one day off. And uh, every day we were praying for Prabhupada's health while we were on Sankratan. And then we came home and we found out Prabhupada left and there were kirtans into the wee hours of the night and um i think we took rest at 2 a.m or something like that and then um my uh, sankirtan partner Pragosh came up and he told me this day of all the days it's the most important day for us to go on sankirtan that was his words and and so even though there were more um, things going to be going on in the temple, cele- uh, not celebrations, but you know observances, so we went. We got suited up, uh, and we went out to Laguardia, feeling jagat shunya. You know, <laughs> the whole material world was was uh, empty. We were just sort of numb. And we drove out to LaGuardia, did our normal thing, got the boxes out of the back of the car, put them on the trolley, started going down the long conveyor belt. And I I had a spot that I worked there every day. And I remember when I got up off the escalator, I put my box down, I stepped onto my spot, and all of a sudden I felt this amazing connection. There was a wave that came through me that uh, i'll never be separated from my spiritual master because i'm going to hold on to this instruction and it, and paradoxically i felt more connected at that second than i ever had before because i realized the resolve that i had didn't go away and that i, I always had his instruction and his example and it was uh, a kind of profound feeling of separation and union at the same time so this, it's an uncanny way in which those, those uh, feelings are juxtaposed and that uh, one supports the other, and that's why they're two banks of the river of, of love. Beautiful. thank you, much. thank you so much. Can we have a little bit of a thank you that? <laughs> <clears throat> The deliverance of Muchukunda. He's the guy who broke my arm. When uh, Krishna came out of the city, Kaliyavana, who had never seen Krishna before, saw him to be extraordinarily beautiful, dressed in yellow garments. Passing through Kaliyavana's assembly of soldiers, Krishna appeared like the moon in the sky, passing through the assembled clouds. Kaliyavana was fortunate enough to see the lines of Srivata, a particular impression on the chest of Sri Krishna and the koush to he was wearing. Kaliavana saw, he's the son, oh, that's what I wanted to go back to. He was the son of, of um, Gargamuni. Yeah. That is amazing. <laughs> I mean, the very fact that, you know, Gargamuni so intimately connected with them, and then there was some uh, taunting that went on, and and the Yadu dynasty members laughed, so he said, okay, yeah, we'll see about that. And then he had some uh, effective yagya with Lord Shiva so he could get a son. That's a, a lot of trouble to go to, <laughs> to, to execute a grudge. And then he got this son named Kaliavana. And that's who's coming at him now, is the son of Gargamuni, right? That's right. That is amazing, actually. And that's a, a pretty uh, interesting storyline. Okay.
1: Princes of the other dynasty went and taunted and teased I don't know who it was I don't know if it was Narda muni but the brahmanas
0: yeah Narda was there and
1: Nar- yeah and, and and they just and they you know they made a big you know pregnant what one of the you know princes made him Samba. Look like you know sama made him look pregnant and then they were saying sarcastically what what are we going to have a boy or a girl and they said, "Oh, you're sages gonna have, were
0: upset yeah, you're going to have a piece of
1: uh, iron and it's going to be the destruction of your whole dynasty." And they said, "Oops." <laughs> and they went.
0: Kaliyavana saw him, however, in his Vishnu form with a well-built body, four hands and eyes like the petals of a newly blooming lotus. Krishna appeared beautiful with a handsome forehead and beautiful smiling face, restless eyebrows and moving earrings. Before seeing Krishna, Kalyavana had heard about him from Narada and now the descriptions of Narada were confirmed. Kalyavana noticed Krishna's specific marks and the jewels on his chest, his beautiful garland of lotus flowers, his lotus-like eyes and similar beautiful bodily features. He concluded that this beautiful personality must be Vasudev, for every description he had previously heard from Narada was substantiated by the presence of Krishna. Kaliyavana, and that's the other thing Narada told him to go. (laughs) Go get him. Kaliyavana was astonished to see Krishna passing through his army without any weapon in his hands and without any chariot. He was simply walking on foot. Kaliyavana had come to fight with Krishna, and yet he had sufficient principles not to take up any kind of weapon. He decided to fight with him hand to hand. Thus he prepared to capture Krishna and fight. Krishna, however, went ahead without looking at Kaliavana. Kaliavana followed him with the desire to capture him, but in spite of his swift running, he could not capture Krishna. Krishna cannot be captured even by great yogis traveling at the speed of the mind. He can be captured only by those who follow the path of devotional service. And Kaliavana was not practiced in devotional service. <laughs> He wanted to capture Krishna, and since he could not do so, he followed him from behind. Kaliyavana began running very fast, thinking, "Now I am nearer. I will capture him." But he could not. Krishna led him far away and entered the cave of a hill. Kaliyavana thought that Krishna was trying to avoid fighting him, and was therefore taking shelter of the cave. He rebuked him with the following words: "O oh Krishna, I heard that you are a great hero, born of the." dynasty of Yadu, but i see that you are running away from fighting like a coward it is not worthy of your good name and family tradition kalyavana was following running very fast but he could still not catch krishna because he was not freed from all contaminations of sinful life according to the Vedic, vedic culture Anyone who does not follow the regulative principles observed by the higher castes, the prominent Kshatriyas, and Vaishyas, or even those observed by the lower class, the Shudras, the laborer class, the Shudras, is called the Mlecha or Yavana. The Vedic social situation is so planned that persons accepted as Shudras can gradually be elevated to the position of brahmanas by the cultural advancement known as samskara or the purificatory process. The verdict of the Vedic scriptures is that no one becomes a pramana or mlecha simply by birth. By birth, everyone is accepted as a shudra. One has to elevate himself by the purificatory process to the stage of brahminical life. If he doesn't, if he degrades himself further, then he is called a mlecha or yavana. Kali yavana belonged to the class of mlechas and yavanas. Contaminated by sinful activities, he could not approach Krishna. The principles from which higher class men are restricted, namely illicit sex, indulgence, meat-eating, gambling, and intoxication are an integral part of the lives of the mlechas and yavanas. Being bound by such sinful activities, one cannot make any advancement in God-realization. The Bhagavad Gita confirms that only one who is completely freed from all sinful reactions can engage in devotional service or Krishna consciousness.
1: When Krishna entered the cave of the hill Kaliyavana followed chastising him with various harsh words Krishna suddenly disappeared from the demon's sight but Kaliyavana followed and also entered the cave the first thing he saw was a man lying down asleep within the cave Kaliyavan was eager to fight with Krishna but when he could not see Krishna but instead saw only a man lying down he thought that Krishna was sleeping within the cave kaliyavan was very much puffed up and proud of his strength and he thought Krishna was avoiding the fight therefore he strongly kicked the sleeping man thinking him to be krishna oops the sleeping man had been lying down for a very long time. When awakened by the kicking of Kalyavana, he immediately opened his eyes and began to look around in all directions. At last he saw Kalyavana standing nearby. The man had been untimely awakened and was therefore very angry. And when he looked upon Kalyavana in his angry mood, rays of fire. Emanating from his, emanated from his eyes and Kaliavana burned to ashes within a moment. When Maharaj had heard this incident of Kaliavana's being burned to ashes, he inquired about the sleeping man from Shukadev Goswami. Who was he? Why was he sleeping there? How had he achieved so much power that instantly, by his glance, Kaliyavan was burned to ashes how did he happen to be lying down in the cave of the hill? He put many questions before Shukadev Goswami and Shukadev answered as follows My dear king this person was born in a very great family of King Ikshwaku in which Lord Brahmachandra was also born and he happened to be the son of a great king known as Mandata. He himself was also a great soul and was known popularly as Muchakunda. King Muchakunda was a strict follower of the Vedic principles of Brahminical culture and he was truthful to his promise. He was so powerful that even demigods like Indra used to ask him to help in fighting the demons and as such he often fought against the demons to protect the demigods. The commander-in-chief of the demigods, known as Kartikeya, was satisfied with the fighting of King Muchakunda, but once he asked that the king, having taken too much trouble in fighting the demons, retire from fighting and take rest. Kartikeya addressed King Muchakunda, My dear king, you have sacrificed everything for the sake of the demigods. You had a very nice kingdom, undisturbed by any kind of enemy, but you left that kingdom, neglected your opulence and possessions, and never cared for for, for fulfillment of your personal ambitions. Due to your long absence from your kingdom while fighting the demons, on, due to your long absence from your fu- kingdom while fighting the demons on behalf of the demigods, your queen your children, your relatives and your ministers have all passed away in due course of time. Time and tide wait for no man. Now even if you return to your home you will find no one living there. The influence of time is very strong. Time is so powerful because it is a representation of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Time is therefore stronger than the strongest. The influence of time can affect changes in subtle things, without difficulty. No one can check the progress of time. As an animal tamer tames animals according to his will, time also adjusts things according to its own will. No one can supersede the arrangement made by supreme time, thus addressing Muchakunda The demigod requested him to ask any benediction he might be pleased with except the benediction of liberation. Liberation cannot be awarded by any living entity but the Supreme Personality of Godhead Vishnu. Therefore another name of Lord Vishnu or Krishna is Mukunda, he who can award liberation. King Muchikunda had not slept for many, many years. He was engaged in the duty of fighting and therefore he was very tired. So when the demigod offered a benediction, Muchikunda simply thought of sleeping. He replied as follows, My dear Kartikeya, best of the demigods, I want to sleep now. And I want from you the following benediction. Grant me the power to burn to ashes by my mere glance anyone who disturbs my sleeping and awakens me untimely. Proofs of Krishna's omniscience. Please give me this benediction. The demigod agreed and also gave him the benediction that he would able to, to be able to take complete rest. Then King Muchagunda entered the cave of the mountain. On the strength of the benediction of Kartikeya Muchakunda burned Kaliavana to ashes simply by glancing at him. When the incident was over, Krishna came before King Muchakunda. Krishna had actually entered the cave to deliver King Muchakunda because of his austerity. But Krishna did not appear be- before him first. He arranged that first Kaliavana should come before him. That is the way of the activities of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. He does one thing in such a way that many other purposes are served. He wanted to deliver King Muchukunda, who was sleeping in the cave, and at the same time he wanted to kill Kalyavana, who had attacked Mathura City. By this action, he served all purposes. When Lord Krishna appeared before Muchukunda, the king saw him dressed in a yellow garment, his chest marked with the symbol of Sribats, and the Kostuba jewel hanging hanging around his neck. Krishna appeared before him with four hands as Vishnu Murti, with a garland called Bajayanti hanging from his neck down to his knees. He looked lustrous. His face was beautifully smiling and he wore nice jeweled earrings on his ears. Krishna appeared more beautiful than a human can conceive. Not only did he appear in this feature, but he glanced over Muchukunda with great affection, attracting the king's mind. Although he was the supreme personality of Godhead, the oldest of all, he looked like a fresh young boy, and his movements were just like those of a free deer. Still, he appeared extremely powerful. His influence and vast power are so great that every human being should be afraid of him. When King Muchakunda saw Krishna's magnificent features, he wondered about his identity, and with great humility he asked the Lord, My dear Lord, may I inquire how it is that you happen to be in the cave of this mountain? Who are you? I can see that your feet are just like soft lotus flowers. How could you walk in the forest full of thorns and pebbles. I am simply surprised to see this. Are you not, therefore, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, the most powerful amongst the powerful? Are you not the original source of all illumination and fire? Can I consider you one of the great demigods, like the sun god, the moon god, or Indra, king of heaven? Or are you the predominating deity, of some other planets.
0: Mushukunda knew well that every higher planetary system has a predominating deity. He was not ignorant like modern men who think that this planet Earth is full of living entities and all others are vacant. The inquiry from Muchukunda about Krishna's being the predominating deity of a planet unknown to him is quite appropriate. Because he was a pure devotee of the Lord, King Muchukunda could immediately understand that Lord Krishna, who had appeared before him such an opulent feature, could not be one of the predominating deities of the material planets. He must be the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Krishna, who has many Vishnu forms. Muchukunda therefore took him to be Purushottam, Lord Vishnu, He could see also that the dense darkness within the mountain cave had been dissipated by the Lord's presence. Therefore, he could not be other than the Supreme Personality of Godhead. But knew very well that wherever the Lord is personally present by his transcendental name, qualities, form, and so on, there cannot be any darkness of ignorance. He is like a lamp placed in the darkness. He immediately illuminates a dark place. King Muchakunda was eager to know the identity of Lord Krishna, and therefore he said, O best of human beings, if you think I am fit to know your identity, kindly tell me who you are. What is your parentage? What is your occupational duty? And what is your family tradition? King Muchakunda thought it wise, however, to identify himself to the Lord first. Otherwise, he had no right to ask the Lord's identity. Etiquette is such that a person of less importance cannot ask the identity of a person of higher importance without first disclosing his own identity. King Muchukunda therefore told Lord Krishna, my dear Lord, let me first inform you of my identity. I belong to the most celebrated dynasty of King Ikshvaku. But personally, I'm not as great as my forefather. My name is Muchukunda. My father's name was Mandata, And my grandfather, was the great king, Yuvanasva, Yuvanasva. I was very much fatigued due to not resting for many thousands of years, and because of this, all my bodily limbs were slack and almost incapable of acting. To revive my energy, I was taking rest in this solitary cave, but I have been awakened by some unknown man who has forced me to wake up, although I was not willing to do so. For such an offensive act, I have burned this person to ashes simply by glancing over him. Fortunately, now I can see you in this grand and beautiful feature. I think, therefore, that you are the cause of my killing my enemy. My dear Lord, I must admit that due to your bodily effulgence, unbearable to my eyes, I cannot see you properly. I can fully realize that the influence of your effulgence has diminished my power. I can understand that you are quite fit for being worshipped by all living entities. Seeing King Muchakunda eager to know about his identity, Lord Krishna answered smilingly as follows, My dear King, it is practically impossible to tell about my birth, appearance, disappearance, and activities. Perhaps you know that my incarnation, Anantadev has unlimited mouths, and for an unlimited time he has been trying to narrate fully about my name, fame, qualities, activities, appearance, disappearance, and incarnations. But still he has not been able to finish. Therefore it is not possible to know exactly how many names and forms I possess. It may be possible for a material scientist to estimate the number of atomic particles which make up this earthly planet, but the scientists cannot enumerate my unlimited names, forms, and activities. Many great sages and saintly persons have tried to list my different forms and activities, yet they have failed to make a complete list. But since you are so eager to know about me, I may inform you that I have now appeared on this planet just to annihilate the demoniac principles of the people in general and reestablish the religious principles enjoined in the Vedas. I have been invited for this purpose by Brahma, the superintending deity of this universe, and thus I have now appeared in the dynasty of the Yadus as one of their family members. I have specifically taken my birth as the son of Vasudeva in the Yadu dynasty, and people therefore know me as Vasudeva, the son of Vasudeva. You may also know that I have killed Kanksa, who in a previous life was known as Kalanemi, as well as Pralambasura and many other demons. They have acted as my enemies and I have killed them. The demon who is present before you also acted as my enemy and you have very kindly burned him to ashes by glancing over him. My dear Muchukunda, you are my great devotee and just to show you my causeless mercy, I have appeared in this cave. I'm very affectionately inclined toward my devotees and in your previous life, before your present condition, you acted as my great devotee and prayed for my causeless mercy. I have therefore come to see you to fulfill your desire. Now you can see me to your heart's content. My dear King, now you may ask from me any benediction you wish, and I am prepared to fulfill your desire. It is my eternal principle that anyone who comes under my shelter must have all his desires fulfilled by my grace. It is my eternal principle Then anyone who comes under my shelter must have all his desires fulfilled by my grace. I read the other day in the seventh canto, Prabhupada said, the best way to fulfill all one's desires is to surrender to Krishna. That's the proper way to do it. Because only Krishna knows how to completely fulfill all one's desires. An example elsewhere, wasn't given in the seventh canto, but one that I've always appreciated was the story of Karda Mamuni. and after he meditated for thousands of years and the Lord appeared out of compassion for him and he offered his prayers did did the um, did the sage then uh, he also said that uh, he he wanted a wife because he had been ordered to propagate and uh, the Lord said I already know that why wouldn't I know that and um, and then um, and then it's mentioned that he, he left it up to the Lord and Prabhupada mentions in the purport that that um, this is the way to fulfill a material, uh, material desire. So it may be there, but you put it before the Lord and say then you um, please um, make the proper arrangement because who could make a better arrangement? And even then the Lord said, I already made the arrangement. And... Um, uh, Swayambhuva Manu will be coming very soon with his wife and with his daughter who is Devahuti and when he came then Swayambhuva in presenting to the sage apparently I mean it's possible that when he came there the sage could say nah I changed my mind I want to get married because sages could do that but he said did Swayambhuva that if things come to you like this by the Lord's arrangement it doesn't look very well if you reject them, and then later on you try to uh, make your own arrangement. He said, then you won't look very good, because this is directly arranged by the Supreme Personality of Godhead, so you should take it. But just, this is a, one of the important principles that's, that runs throughout all of the teachings uh, through, from Bhagavad Gita, Srimad Bhagavatam, That's that surrender to Krishna. That's one of the aspects of it, is not trying to take matters into one's own hands, leaving it to Krishna. And Jiva Goswami uh, writes in one of his commentaries, I have the notations, that the, the, the devotees of the Lord, at every minute, they're aware of Krishna's proclamation in the Bhagavad Gita, that if one surrenders unto him, then He will, Krishna will personally take care of that person he says that the devotee is always thinking of that and always depending on that in his in his life. Is that on or off?
1: Red means dead. Green. Green. Okay. Green. Hello. Hello. Alo. Alo. Hello. Okay. Hello. And that
0: brings us to the end of our. <laughs>
1: So two points. One is that I heard Gopi Pranadana Prabhu say in relationship to Kardama Muni that even though he appeared to have some material desire to have a wife and propagate, but he was not an ordinary person because he was going to be the father of God. So you don't become the father of God just by becoming a great this or a great that. A very, very special uh, personality and the other point was that Rupa Goswami in, regard to, in relation to your point Rupa Goswami made the comment that if you want to be to, if, if if you want to live in the material world and not be influenced by the material nature then you must make it your ambition to serve Krishna.
0: He also said don't go down and see that boy then you'll be ruined you'll never be able to go back to mature life properly thank you very much everyone for joining us for the reading of Krishna's supreme personality've got we've come to the end of our allotted time and we thank everyone who joined us online from various places around the world we thank our our um, production crew who have been working tirelessly to perfect the the sound and also to send out the the signal to several places at one time. How's it going with that? Getting there? A few (laughs) few obstacles, but I hear them out there. They're consulting with one another and trying to um, broadcast on multiple channels. How many channels are we on anyway now?
1: Right now? Yeah. Right now, it's
0: on Facebook only. No YouTube? Uh, we're trying, we, we want to try on three channels, but one of the obstacles we are facing is uh, the stability. We're stability. is very stable, and uh, we
1: don't want to broadcast multiple channels while making it somewhat unstable.
0: That means that you have to come to Nishta <laughs> before you can <laughs> develop other kinds of relationships. <laughs> Gopramanandai! Om namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya, namo bhagavate vasudevaya. Om namo Om namo You ready we're continuing with our reading of Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead. And um, where did we end up on 51, the deliverance of Mushukunda? Midway through, right? When Lord Krishna ordered King Mushukunda. Is that correct? We're taking up uh, partway through the, to chapter 51. And um, Marsh will read his invocation prayers later is my prediction. When Lord Krishna ordered king, king Muchukunda, sorry, we're starting in the middle, it's very rare, but it does happen. When Lord Krishna ordered King Muchukunda to ask a benediction from him, the king was joyful, and he immediately remembered the prediction of Gargamuni, who had foretold long before that in the 28th millennium of Vivasvatumanu, Lord Krishna would appear on this planet. As soon as he remembered this prediction, he understood that the Supreme Person Narayan was present before him as Lord Krishna. He immediately fell down at his lower feet and began to pray as follows. My dear Lord, O Supreme Personality of Godhead, I can understand that all living entities on this planet are illusioned by your external energy and enamored of the illusory satisfaction of sense gratification. Being fully engaged in illusory activities, they are reluctant to worship your lotus feet. And because they are unaware of the benefits of surrendering unto your lotus feet, they are subjected to various miserable conditions of material existence. They are foolishly attached to so-called society, friendship, and love, which merely produce different kinds of miseries. Illusioned by your external energy, everyone, whether man or woman, is attached to this material existence and all are engaged in cheating one another in a great society of the cheaters and the cheated. These foolish persons not knowing how fortunate they are to have obtained this human form of life are reluctant to worship your lotus feet. By the influence of your external energy, they are attached to the glare of material activities, to so-called society, friendship and love. Like dumb animals that have fallen into a dark well. The example of a dark well is given because in the fields there are many wells unused for years and covered over by grass and poor animals not knowing of them fall into them and unless rescued, they die. Being captivated by a few bra- blades of grass, the animals fall into a dark well and meet death. Similarly, foolish persons without knowing the importance of the human form of life spoil it simply for sense gratification without any useful purpose my dear lord i am not an exception to universal law of material nature i am also a foolish person who has wasted his time and my position is especially difficult on account of my being situated in the royal order i was more puffed up than ordinary persons An ordinary man thinks he is the proprietor of his body or his family. But I began to think in this way on a larger scale. I wanted to be the master of the whole world. And as I became puffed up with ideas of sense gratification, my bodily concept of life became stronger and stronger. My attachment for home, wife, and children, for money and supremacy over the world became more and more acute. In fact, it was limitless. So I remained always attached to thoughts of my material living conditions. Therefore, my dear Lord, I wasted so much of my valuable lifetime with no benefit. As my misconception of life intensified, I began to think of this material body, which is just like a bag of flesh and bones, as the all in all. And in my vanity, I believed I had become the king of human society. In this misconception of bodily life, I traveled all over the world, accompanied by my military strength, soldiers, charioteers, elephants, and horses. Assisted by many commanders and puffed up by by power, I could not trace out your lordship, who always sit within my heart as the most intimate friend. I did not care for you, and this was the fault of my so-called exalted material condition. I think that, like me, all living creatures are careless about spiritual realization and are always full of anxieties, thinking, what is to be done? What is next? But because we are strongly bound by material desires, we continue to remain in craziness. Yet in spite of our being so absorbed in material thought, inevitable time, which is only a form of yourself, is always careful about its duty And as soon as the allotted time is over, your lordship immediately ends all the activities of our material dreams. As the time factor, you end all our activities as a hungry black snake swiftly swallows up a small rat without leniency. Due to the action of cruel time, the royal body, which was always decorated with golden ornaments during life and which moved on a chariot drawn by beautiful horses or on the back of an elephant nicely decorated with golden ornaments and which was advertised as the king of human society, the same royal body decomposes under the influence of inevitable time and becomes fit for being eaten by worms and insects or the stool of an animal. This beautiful body may be recognized as a royal body while in the living condition, but after death the body of even a king is eaten by an animal and therefore turned into stool or it is cremated in a crematorium and turned into ashes or is put into an earthly grave where different kinds of worms and insects are produced of it. My dear Lord, we come under the full control of this inevitable time, not only after death but also in a different way while living. For example, I may be a powerful king and yet when I come home after conquering the world, I become subjected to many material conditions. When I come back victorious, all subordinate kings may come and offer their respects, but as soon as I enter the inner section of my palace, I myself become an instrument in the hands of the queens, and for sense gratification, I have to fall down at the feet of women. The material way of life is so complicated that before taking the enjoyment of material life, one has to work so hard that there is scarcely an opportunity for peaceful enjoying. And to attain all material facilities, one has to undergo severe austerities and penances and be elevated to the heavenly planets. If one gets the opportunity to take birth in a very rich or royal family, even then he is always anxious to maintain the status quo and prepare for the next life by performing various sacrifices and distributing charity. Even in royal life, one is full of anxieties, not only because of political administration, but also in regard to being elevated to the heavenly planets. It is therefore very difficult to get out of material entanglement. But if one is somehow or other favored by you, by your mercy alone, he is given the opportunity to associate with a pure devotee. That is the beginning of liberation from the entanglement of material conditioned life. My dear Lord, only by the association of pure devotees is one able to approach your Lordship, who are the controller of both the material and spiritual existences. You are the supreme goal of all pure devotees, and by association with pure devotees one can develop his dormant love for you. Therefore, development of Krishna consciousness in the association of pure devotees is the cause of liberation from this material entanglement. My dear Lord, you are so merciful that in spite of my being reluctant to associate with your pure devotees, you have shown your extreme mercy upon me as a result of my slight contact with such a pure devotee as Gargamuni. By your causeless mercy only have I lost all my material opulences, my kingdom and my family. I do not think I could have gotten rid of all these entanglements without your causeless mercy." Kings and emperors sometimes accept the life of an ascetic to forget their royal life, but by your special causeless mercy, I have already been bereft of royalty. I do not need to become a mendicant or practice renunciation. My dear Lord, I therefore pray that I may simply be engaged in rendering transcendental loving service unto your lotus feet. This is the ambition of pure devotees who are freed from all material contamination. You are the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and you can offer me anything I want, including liberation. But who is such a fool that after pleasing you, he would ask from you something which might cause entanglement in this material world? I do not think any sane man would ask such a benediction from you. I therefore surrender unto you because you are the Supreme Personality of Godhead, you are the Supersoul living in everyone's heart, and you are the impersonal Brahman effulgence." Moreover, you are also this material world because this material world is only the manifestation of your external energy. Therefore, from any angle of vision, you are the supreme shelter for everyone. Whether on the material plane or the spiritual plane, everyone must take shelter unto your lotus feet. I therefore submit unto you, my Lord.
1: For many, many births I have been suffering from the threefold miseries of this material existence. And I am now tired of it. I have been impelled only by my senses, and I was never satisfied. I therefore take shelter of your lotus feet, which are the source of all peaceful life, in which can eradicate all lamentation caused by material contamination. My dear Lord, you are the super soul of everyone and you can understand everything. Now I am free from all contamination of material desire. I do not wish to enjoy this material world, nor do I wish to take advantage of merging into your spiritual effulgence. Nor do I wish to meditate upon your localized aspect of Paramatma. <clears throat> For I know that simply by taking shelter of you, I shall become completely peaceful and undisturbed. On hearing this statement by King Muchikunda, Lord Krishna replied, My dear King, I am very much pleased with your statement. You have been the king of all the lands on this planet but I am surprised to find that your mind is now freed from all material contamination. You are now fit to execute devotional service. I am most pleased to see that although I offered you the opportunity to ask for me any kind of benediction, you did not take the opportunity to ask me for any kind of benediction. You did not take advantage of asking for material benefits. I can understand that your mind is now fixed in me and it is not disturbed by any material quality. The material qualities are three, namely goodness, passion and ignorance. When one is placed into the mixed material qualities of passion and ignorance, various kinds of greed and lusty desires impel him to try to find comfort in this material world. When situated in the material quality of goodness, one tries to purify himself by performing various penances and austerities. When one reaches the platform of a real brahmana, he aspires to merge into the existence of a Lord. But when one desires only to render service unto the lotus feet of the Lord, he is transcendental to all these three qualities. The pure Krishna conscious person is therefore always free from all material qualities. My dear King, Lord Krishna continued, I offered to give you any kind of benediction just to test how much, you have been, how much you have advanced in devotional service. Now I can see that you are on the platform of the pure devotees, for your mind is not disturbed by any greedy or lusty desires of this material world. The yogis who try to elevate themselves by controlling the senses and who meditate upon me by practicing the breathing exercise of pranayama are not so thoroughly freed from material desires. It has been seen in several cases that as soon as there is allurement, such yogis again come down to the material platform. The vivid example verifying this statement is Vishwamrita Muni. Vishwamrita Muni was a great yogi who practiced pranayama, a breathing exercise, but when he was visited by Menaka, a society woman of the heavenly planets, he lost all control and begot in her a daughter named Shakuntala. But the pure devotee, Haridas Thakur, was never disturbed even when all such anurmads were offered by a prostitute. My dear King, Lord Krishna continued, I therefore give you this special benediction that you will always think of me. Thus you will be be able to traverse this material world freely without being contaminated by the material qualities. This statement by the Lord confirms that a person in true Krishna consciousness engaged in the transcendental loving service of the Lord under the direction of the spiritual master is never subject to the contamination of material qualities. My dear king, the Lord said, because you are a Kshatriya, you have committed the offense of slaughtering animals both in hunting and in political engagements. To become purified, just engage yourself in the practice of bhakti yoga, and always keep your mind absorbed in me. Very soon, you will be freed from all reactions to such sordid activities. In this statement, it appears that although Kshatriyas are allowed to kill animals in hunting, they are not freed from the resultant contamination of sinful sinful reactions. Therefore, whether one is a Kshatriya, Vaisha, or Brahmana, one is recommended to take sannyas at the end of life to engage himself completely in the service of the Lord and thus become freed from all sinful reactions of his past life. The Lord then assured King Muchakunda, in your next life you will take your birth as a first-class Vaishnava, the best of brahmanas, and in that life your only business will be to engage yourself in my transcendental service. A Vaishnava is a first-class Brahmana because one who has not acquired the qualification of a bona fide Brahmana cannot come to the platform of a Vaishnava. When, when one becomes a Vaishnava, he is completely engaged in welfare activities for all living entities. The highest welfare activity for living entities is the preaching of Krishna consciousness. It is stated herein that those who are specifically favored by the Lord can become absolutely Krishna conscious and be engaged in the work of preaching, the Vaishnava philosophy. Thus end the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 51st chapter of Krishna, the deliverance of Muchikunda. <laughs> chapter 52. You're, you're get- you're doing the thing. What you do? You're doing the thing. You're doing your thing. Getting the band. Howdy, both, Sid. Sadhu, Sadhu.
0: so carefully throughout the years siddhanta will make it possible for people thousands of years from now to understand the intentions of those who began the early christian conscious movement thank you sid for all the work that you do one more time siddhanta
4: Does everyone know how Divyanga Prabhu joined Krishna Consciousness? Does everyone know that story? I think we're who, about who to. Who does know. not know that story? All right, you have to get a hold of the memories of Prabhupada books oh. <laughs> or DVDs. And if that, if you're too poor, then uh, he'll have to tell you a fantastic story. It's probably the only story that I've left on the series about how one joined the temple. Because everyone usually everybody goes on and on, and I did this drug and I did that, that, that you know. Everyone's kind of the same thing. <clears throat> At least I speak for myself. But Divyanka's story is unique. You got a unique story too. Okay, I'm going to interview RT this afternoon. So there'll be two part of the series that that include um, how we joined. Did everyone see Bahulazva's story? Do you have uh, internet here? YouTube. I re- that's my last interview that I've done It's uh it heartwarming. One of the best ever. So I recommend that story. Your your love for Prabhupada will deepen. Guaranteed. Hare Krishna. Thank you, Siddhanta
1: yes. Babu. Thank Thanks you very much. Thank Hare you, much. Thank Hare, you. Krishna. Hare Krishna. See you this Thank afternoon. You. <clears throat> <clears throat> Chapter 52, Krishna, the ranchor. When Muchukunda, the celebrated descendant of the Ikshwaku dynasty, was favored by Lord Krishna, he circumambulated the Lord within the cave and then came out. On coming out of the cave, Muchukunda saw that the human species had surprisingly been reduced in stature to pygmy size similarly the trees had also been far reduced in size and muchakunda could immediately understand that the current age was kaliyuga therefore without without diverting his attention he began to travel north Eventually, he reached the mountain known as Gundamadana, where there were many trees, such as sandalwood and other flowering trees, whose fragrance made anyone who reached them joyful. He decided to remain in that Gundamadana mountain region to execute austerities and penances for the rest of his life. It appears that this place is situated in the northernmost, northernmost part of the Himalaya mountains, where the abode of Narayana is situated. This place is still existing and is called Ashram. In Ashram he engaged himself in the worship of Lord Krishna, tolerating all kinds of pains and pleasures and the other dualities of this material world. Lord Krishna returned to the vicinity of Mathura where he fought with the soldiers of Kalayavana and killed them one after another after this he collected all the booty from the dead bodies and under his direction it was loaded on bullock carts and brought back to dwarka meanwhile Jirasinda again attacked matura this time with bigger divisions of soldiers numbering 23 akshohinis
0: Lord Sri Krishna wanted to save Mathura from the 18th attack of the great military divisions of King Jarasandha to prevent further killing of soldiers and to attend to other important business. Lord Krishna left the battlefield without fighting. Actually, he was not at all afraid, but he pretended to be an ordinary human being frightened by the immense quantity of soldiers and resources of Jarasandha. Without any weapons, Krishna left the battlefield. Although his lotus feet were as soft as the petals of a lotus flower, he proceeded for a very long distance on foot. This time, Jarasandha thought that Krishna and Balaram were very much afraid of his military strength and were fleeing the battlefield. He followed them with all his chariots, horses, and infantry. He thought Krishna and Balaram to be ordinary human beings, and he was trying to make the activities of the Lord. Due to this pastime, Krishna is known as ranchor, which means one who has left the battlefield. In India, especially in Gujarat, there are many temples of Krishna known as temples of ranchorji. Originally, ordinarily, if a king leaves the battlefield without fighting, he is called a coward. But when Krishna enacts this pastime, leaving the battlefield without fighting, he is worshipped by the devotees. A demon always tries to measure the opulence of Krishna, whereas a devotee never tries to measure his strength and opulence, but always surrenders unto him and worships him. By following the footsteps of pure devotees, we can know that Krishna, the rancherji, left the battlefield not because he was afraid, but because he had some other purpose. The purpose, as it will be revealed, was to attend to a confidential letter sent by Rukmini, his f- future first wife. Krishna's leaving the battlefield is a display of one of his six opulences. Krishna is the supreme powerful, the supreme wealthy, the supreme famous, the supreme wise, and the supreme beautiful. Similarly, he is the supreme renouncer. Srimad Bhagavatam clearly states that he left the battlefield in spite of having ample military strength. Even without his militia, he alone would have been sufficient to defeat the army of Jarasandha, as he had done 17 times before. Therefore, his leaving the battlefield is an example of his supermost opulence, renunciation. After traversing a very long distance, the brothers pretended to become tired, to mitigate their weariness, they climbed up a mountain many miles above sea level. This mountain was called Pravarshana due to constant rain, for the peak was always covered with clouds sent by Indra. Jarasandha took it for granted that the two brothers were afraid of his military power and had hidden themselves at the top of the mountain. First he tried to find them, searching for a long time, but when he failed he decided to trap and kill them by setting fires around the peak. He therefore surrounded the peak with firewood and set it ablaze. As the fire spread more and more, Krishna Balaram jumped from the top of the mountain down to the ground, a distance of 88 miles. Thus, while the peak was burning up, Krishna Balaram, Balaram escaped, unseen by Jarasandha or his men. Jarasandha concluded that the two brothers had burned to ashes and that there was no need of further fighting. Thinking himself successful in his efforts, he left the city of Mathura and returned to his home in the kingdom of Magadha. Gradually, Krishna and Balaram reached the city of Dwarka, which was surrounded by the sea. Sharing means caring. I think the point you made the other
1: day, that uh, it doesn't doesn't describe here how all the residents of Mathura were transferred to Dvorka? I, I don't
0: I think it's here, is it? Is, no. it, is it still coming? No, it's well, you not. said it was. I said we missed oh.
1: it. Well, I'm just pointing out that you're always right and I'm sometimes wrong.
0: Well, uh-huh. I that? haven't heard it yet, got that? but maybe it's coming up. We'll be able to tell when I we think, get I past can, this section. So it, it was a just, I had just noted the other day that in reading the Bhagavatam, 10th Canto, Maybe it was in the commentary i i I don't remember, but in any case, when Krishna created Dwarka, he transferred all the residents of Mathura to protect them into Dwarka while they were sleeping. They had no knowledge of that they're being moved; they just were moved in their sleep and they woke up and they were in these new palaces Now that was something that i had i hadn't heard yet in the Krishna book, so I was wondering where it was that's. What that's about. Following this, Sri Balaram married Revati, daughter of King Raivata, ruler of Anarta province. This is explained in the ninth canto of Srimad Bhagavad Baladev. Krishna married Rukmini. Rukmini was the daughter of King Bhishmaka, Bhishmaka ruler of the province, Nodha just as Krishna is the supreme personality of Godhead, Rukmini is the supreme goddess of fortune Mahalakshmi. According to the authority of the Shrimati according to the authority of Chaitanya charitamrita the expansion of Krishna and that of Srimati Radharani are simultaneous. Krishna expands himself into various Vishnu Tattva forms, and Shrimati Radharani expands herself into various Shakti Tattva forms by her internal potency, as multi-forms of the goddess of fortune. According to, the, to Vedic convention, there are eight kinds of marriage. In the first-class marriage system, the parents of the bride and bridegroom are marriage date. Then in royal style, the bridegroom goes to the house of the bride, and in the presence of brahmanas, priests, relatives, the bride is given in charity to the bridegroom. Besides this, there are other systems such as the Gandharva and Rakshasa marriages. Krishna married Rukmini according to the Rakshasa system, kidnapping her in the presence of his many rivals like Shishupal, Jarasandha, and Shalva. While Rukmini was being given in charity to Shishupal, Krishna snatched her from the marriage arena exactly as Garuda snatched a pot of nectar from the demigods. Rukmini, the only daughter of King Bhishmaka, was exquisitely beautiful. She was known as ruchiranana, which means one who has a beautiful face expanded like a lotus flower. Ruchiranana. Ruchiranana. Devotees, we have a god-sister named Ruchiranana? Seems a familiar name. Ruchiranana, Ruchiranana, okay, that solves the problem, she's in Dallas, devotees of Krishna are always eager to hear about the transcendental activities of the Lord, his activities of fighting, kidnapping, and running away from the battlefield are all transcendental, being on the absolute platform, and devotees take a transcendental interest in hearing of them, The pure devotee does not make the distinction that some activities of the Lord should be heard and others avoided. There is, however, a class of so-called devotees known as prakrita sahajas, who are very much interested in hearing about Krishna's rasa-lila with the gopis, but not about his fighting with his enemies. They do not know that his bellicose activities and his friendly activities with the gopis are equally transcendental, being on the absolute platform. All the transcendental pastimes of Krishna described in Srimad Bhagavatam are relished by pure devotees through submissive oral reception. They do not reject even a drop. The story of Krishna's marriage with Rukmini is described as follows The king of Vidarbha, Maharaj Bhishmaka, was very qualified and devoted. He had five sons and only one daughter. The first son was known as Rukmi, the second, Rukmaranath, Rukmarath, the third Rukmabahu, the fourth Rukmakesh, and the fifth Rukmamali. The brothers had one young sister, Rukmini. She was beautiful and chaste and was meant to be married to Lord Krishna. Many saintly persons in Sardamuni used to visit the palace of King Bhishmaka Naturally Rukmini had a chance to talk with him, and it is in this way she obtained information about Krishna. She was informed about the six opulences of Krishna and simply by hearing about him, she desired to surrender herself to his lotus feet and to become his wife. Krishna had also heard of Rukmini. She was the reservoir of all transcendental qualities, intelligence, auspicious physical features, liberal-mindedness, exquisite beauty, and righteous behavior. Krishna therefore decided that she was fit to be his wife. All the relatives of King Bhishmaka decided that Rukmini should be given in marriage to Krishna, but her elder brother Rukmini, despite the desire of the others, arranged for her marriage with Shishupal, a determined enemy of Krishna. When the black-eyed, beautiful Rukmini heard of the settlement, she immediately became very morose. However, being a king's daughter, she understood political diplomacy and decided that there was no use in simply being morose. Some steps should be taken immediately. After some deliberation, she decided to send a message to Krishna, and so so that she might not be deceived, she selected a qualified brahmana as her messenger. Such a qualified brahmana is always truthful and is a devotee of Vishnu. Without delay, she sent the brahmana to Dwarka. Reaching the
1: gate of (coughs) Dwarka, the brahmana informed the the doorkeeper of his arrival and the doorkeeper led him to the place where Krishna was sitting on a golden throne. Since the brahmana had the opportunity to be Rukmini's messenger, he was fortunate enough to see the Supreme Personality of Godhead Krishna, the original cause of all causes. A brahmana is the spiritual teacher of all these social divisions. Lord Shri Krishna, in order to teach the Vedic etiquette of how to respect the Brahmana, immediately got up and offered him his throne. When the Brahmana was seated on the golden throne, Lord Shri Krishna began to worship him exactly as the demigods worship Krishna. In this way he taught everyone that worshipping his devotee is more valuable than worshiping him In due time the brahmana took his bath accepted his meal and lay down to take rest on a bedstead and lay down to rest on a bedstead completely bedecked with soft silk As he was resting Lord Sri Krishna silently approached and with great respect put the brahmana's legs on his lap and began to massage them In this way, Krishna appeared before the brahmana and said, My dear brahmana, I hope that you are executing the religious principles without difficulty and that your mind is always peaceful. Different classes of people in the social system are engaged in various professions and when one inquires as to the well-being of a particular person, he should do so on the basis of that person's occupation. Therefore, when one inquires as to the welfare of a brahmana, the questions should be worded according to his condition of life, so as not to disturb him. A peaceful mind is the basis for becoming truthful, clean, equipoised, self-controlled, and tolerant. Thus, by attaining knowledge and knowing its practical application in life, one becomes convinced about the Absolute Truth. The Brahmana knew Krishna to be the Supreme Personality of Godhead, still he accepted the respectful service of the Lord on the grounds of Vedic social convention. Lord Sri Krishna was playing just like a human being. Because he belonged to the Kshatriya vision of the social system and was a young boy, it was his duty to show respect to such a Brahmana. Lord Krishna continued, O best of all the brahmanas, you should always remain satisfied, for if a brahmana is always self-satisfied, he will not deviate from his prescribed duties. And simply by sticking to one's prescribed duties, everyone, especially a brahmana, can attain the highest perfection of all desires. Even if a person is as opulent as the king of heaven Indra, if he is not satisfied, he inevitably has to transmigrate from one planet to another. Such a person can never be happy under any circumstances. But if one's mind is satisfied, even if he is bereft of all possessions, he can be happy living anywhere. This instruction by Krishna to the brāhmaṇa is very significant. The purport is that a true Brahmana should not be disturbed in any situation. In this modern age, Kali Yuga, the so called Brahmanas have accepted the abominable position of Shudras or less and still want to pass as qualified Brahmanas. <clears throat> Actually, a, a qualified Brahmana always sticks to his own duties and never accepts those of a Shudra or of one less than a Shudra. It is advised in the authorized scriptures that a brahmana may, under awkward circumstances, accept the profession of a kshatriya or even a vaisya, but never is to he to accept the profession of a shudra. Lord Krishna declared that a brahmana will never be disturbed by any adverse conditions if he scrupulously sticks to his religious principles. In conclusion, Lord Sri Krishna said, I offer my respectful obeisances to the brahmanas and vaishnavas, for the brahmanas are always self-satisfied and the vaishnavas are always engaged in actual welfare activities for human society. They are the best friends of the people in general. They are free from false egoism and are always in a peaceful condition of mind. Lord Krishna then desired to know about the rulers, kshatriyas, in the brahmana's kingdom. So he inquired whether the citizens of the kingdom were all happy. A king's qualification is judged by the temperament of the people in the kingdom. If they are happy in all respects, it is to be understood that the king is honest and is executing his duties rightly. Krishna said, that the king in whose kingdom the citizens are happy is very dear to him. Of course, Krishna could understand that the Brahmana had come with a confidential message. Therefore he said, If you have no objection, I give you liberty to speak about your mission. Thus being very much satisfied by these transcendental pastimes with the Lord, the Brahmana narrated the whole story of his mission in coming to see Krishna. He got out the letter Rukmini had written to Krishna and said, These are the words of Princess Rukmini. My dear Krishna, O infallible and most beautiful one, any any human being who happens to hear about your transcendental form and pastimes immediately absorbs through his ears your name and fame and qualities. Thus all his material pangs subside and he fixes your form in his heart. Through such transcendental love for you, he always sees you within himself and by this process all his desires are fulfilled. Similarly, I have heard of your transcendental qualities. I may be shameless in expressing myself directly, but you have captivated me and taken my heart. You may doubt my steadiness of character, since how could an unmarried young girl like me approach you without any shame? But my dear Makunda, you are the supreme lion among human beings, the supreme person among persons. Any girl, though not yet having left her home, or even any woman of the highest chastity, would desire to marry you. Being captivated, by your unprecedented character, knowledge, opulence, and position. I know that you are the husband of the goddess of fortune and are very kind toward your devotees. Therefore, I have decided to become your eternal maidservant. My dear Lord, I dedicate my life and soul unto your lotus feet. I have selected your lordship as my husband, and I therefore request you to accept me as your wife. You are the supreme powerful, O lotus side one. Now I belong to you. If that which is enjoyable for the lion to eat is taken away by the jackal, it will be a ludicrous affair. Therefore I request you to immediately take care of me before I am taken away by Shishupal and other princes like him. My dear Lord, in my previous life, I may have done some public welfare work like digging wells and planting trees or pious activities such as performing ritualistic ceremonies and sacrifices and serving superiors like the spiritual master, brahmanas and Vaishnavas. By these activities, perhaps I have pleased the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Narayana. If this be so, then I wish that you, Lord Krishna, the brother of Lord Balaram. Please come here and catch hold of my hand so that I shall not be touched by Shishupal in his company. Rukmini's marriage with Shishupal was already settled. Therefore, she suggested that Krishna kidnap her so that this might be changed. This sort of marriage in which the girl is kidnapped by force is known as Rakshasa and it is practiced among chtriyas or men with administrative martial spirit. Because her marriage was already arranged to take place the next day, Rukmini suggested that Krishna come there incognito to kidnap her and then fight with Shishupal and his allies like the king of Magadha. Knowing that no one could conquer Krishna who who would certainly emerge victorious, She addressed him as Ajita, the unconquerable Lord.
0: Rukmini told Krishna not to be concerned that the fighting would take place within the palace and that many of her family members, including other women, might thus be wounded or even killed. As the king of a country thinks of diplomatic ways to achieve his object, Rukmini, being the daughter of a king, was diplomatic in suggesting how this unnecessary and undesirable killing could be avoided. She explained that it was the custom of her family to visit the temple of goddess Durga, their family deity, before a marriage. The Kshatriya kings were mostly staunch Vaishnavas, worshipping Lord Vishnu in either the Radha Krishna or Lakshmi Narayana form. Still, for their material welfare, they used to worship goddess Durga, they never made the mistake, however, of accepting the demigods as the Supreme Lord on the equal level of Vishnu Tattva, as do some less intelligent men. To avoid the unnecessary killing of her relatives, Rukmini suggested that it would be easiest for him to kidnap her while she was either going from the palace to the temple or else returning home. She also explained to Krishna why she was anxious to marry him, even though her marriage was to take place with Shishupal, who was also qualified being the son of a great king. Rukmini said that she did not think anyone was greater than Krishna, not even Lord Shiva, who is known as Mahadeva, the greatest of all demigods. Lord Shiva also seeks the pleasure of Lord Krishna in order to be delivered from his entanglement in the quality of ignorance within the material world. Although Lord Shiva is the greatest of all great souls, Mahatmas, he keeps on his head the purifying water of the Ganges, which emanates from a hole in this material universe made by the toe of Lord Vishnu. Lord Shiva is in charge of the material quality of ignorance, and to keep himself in a transcendental position, he always meditates on Lord Vishnu or Krishna and always tries to purify himself with the water of the Ganges. Therefore, Rukmini knew very well that obtaining the favour of Krishna was not easy. Since even Lord Shiva must purify himself for this purpose, surely it would be difficult for Rukmini, who was only the daughter of a Kshatriya king. Thus, she desired to dedicate her life to observing severe austerities and penances, such as fasting and going without bodily comforts. If it were not possible in this lifetime to gain Krishna's favour, These activities, she was prepared to die from such austerities and to undergo similar difficulties lifetime after lifetime. In the Bhagavad Gita, it is said that pure devotees of the Lord execute devotional service with great determination. Such determination, as exhibited by Rukmini Devi, is the only price for purchasing Krishna's favor. One should be strongly determined in Krishna consciousness. And that is the way, to ultimate success. After relaying Rukmini Devi's statement to Krishna, the Brahmana said, "My dear Krishna, chief of the Yadu dynasty, I have brought this confidential message for you from Rukmini. Now it is placed before you for your consideration. After due deliberation, you may act as you please. But if you want to do, you may act as you please. But if you want to do something." You must do it immediately. There is not much time left for action. Thus ends the Bhaktivedanta Purport of the fifty second chapter of Krishna Krishna the Ranchor Natyriar Marman Natari Marman 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 Hey Natariar Marman Marman. Na chre marman na chre